All right. Well, it is a playoff edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, your host, and I'm joined by Mr. Terry Pluto, as I am every week. Mr. Pluto's award-winning columnist for the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. How you doing, Terry? I'm doing well. Can you say playoffs? It is crazy to think about that after everything the Browns have been through and all the injuries and the the crazy stuff that this is happening. Yeah. <laughs> and and they're in the playoffs and man, uh they actually have a shot to win some games here, right? So but um hey, we're going to get into the Browns. We're probably going to spend a quite a bit of time talking about the Browns today. We've also got some Cavs that we want to get into in the second half. I want to ask you if you think the Cavs are playing the right way, Terry. Mm-hmm. Um from what you've seen, that's kind of an ongoing discussion we've been having. We do have a couple more fan letters. Uh, I don't know. We'll see what else we get into, but this is going to be mostly Browns and with good reason, right? So uh, I, I liked your column that you wrote yesterday. We're taping this on Monday afternoon. The old man and the kid yeah. <laughs> is going to be the big quarterback matchup. Why don't you talk about how unusual it is to see this kind of a, of a pairing between the opposing quarterbacks? Well, I believe Flacco is certainly the oldest starting quarterback in the NFL, if not the oldest one, period. And then I'm not sure if Stroud is the youngest, but he has to be close at 22. And Flacco will be 39 next week. So then I started thinking, okay, well, how old was Stroud when Flacco got drafted? He was like in the sixth grade or something, you know. No, I'm sorry. Excuse me. He was like six years old when when Flacco was drafted. And then when I looked at, okay, where was he when Flacco went to the Super Bowl and that? And he was like in junior high. It's just an amazing setup. And then I was looking at their stats, and actually if you were to kind of lay the numbers out and say, which one is a rookie and which one is a polished veteran quarterback, you probably would point to uh, Flacco's numbers of being more, a little more like a rookie, you know, a lot of touchdowns, but also a lot of interceptions and that kind of stuff. And you would look at the Stroud with 66% completion and 22 touchdowns and five interceptions. You know, that's like some poised veteran guy wins the games. And so that's sort of flipped too. In fact, the subheads I used, you know, he's too old or is he for Flacco? And he's too young, or is he, for Stroud? And the answer, of course, is, you know, both are playing differently, but at really peak performances. And then you roll in that it's Houston, you know, where Deshaun Watson was supposed to be playing for the Browns, but he's not where he started his career. And Flacco has, in effect, bailed them out. And while they didn't use those draft picks uh, that the Browns sent them to get Stroud, when they decided after uh, – Watson stayed home the one year before he was traded, and they just took the hit on the dra- on the there. It set them up to draft a quarterback, and they got the right one. Yeah, and uh, the people of Carolina are kicking themselves for picking. Yeah. It looks to be a big mistake, a franchise-altering mistake. And actually, the Panthers not only drafted the wrong quarterback, it appears they also don't have that number one pick, no. <laughs> which is going to the Chicago Bears because they traded up last year to – uh, to move into number one. So anyway, that's a whole other discussion. But Terry, you've been kind of hitting a theme the last week or two about telling fans enjoy the moment. Yeah. And I think I want to spend a second here. Who knows how we'll talk about our predictions in a minute, but you don't know how the playoffs are going to go. Crazy things happen. But I think we should take a minute here. How have the Browns done this and what has impressed you most about the moves the Andrew Barry front office has made or the coaching. What do you think as you go into this first playoff game really has impressed you about how the Browns have done this despite all the adversity they've had to face? It's a tribute to stability and a total organization effort because while they changed coordinators with Schwartz coming in for Joe Woods and, uh, and then adding Bubba Ventrone, to take over special teams, uh, they didn't touch GM Andrew Barry or his top assistants even. You know, Gwen Cook is interviewing somewhere else. And also, they brought Stefanski back. Now, you can say, well, maybe they should have, but this is the Browns. I mean, nobody has gone four full years since they came back in 99 except Romeo Cornell. And we could assume Stefanski will be back next year. So that will be the longest reigning coach since 99. Actually, I think the longest reigning coach 
This is a tough one because I think um, Marty only lasted four years. I believe Bill only lasted four years. So now we're in the five-year territory. Um, we could, I'm sure somebody there is maybe scrolling right now through their phone or whatever to see who it would be. Uh, but you're talking about uh, stability that we haven't seen. And that helped them when things went sideways and with the injuries and that. And unlike past years, David, where remember the infamous phrase internal discord came up when they fired Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley on the same day. Um, you know, you just did, you didn't hear stuff that the GM and the coach are at each other or the the coaches weren't happy that the GMs did this because that stuff occurs, but they kept a lid on it. So that I think was a key part of setting them up for success where things went sideways. Yeah, I think you make an important point there, Terry. What's the big A word that we always heard from Jimmy Haslam over the years? Alignment, yeah. right? We want mm-hmm. alignment. And if you're a fan and you're like, geez, just win games. Like, I don't care about alignment, yeah. but this is what it is. When things are going crazy, you got five. You have to play five quarterbacks and five offensive tackles, and the injuries are. Your kicker gets hurt. If you have that stability, like you were talking about, with the ownership, the GM, the front office, the coaches, all kind of pulling the rope the same direction. When everything else is going crazy, you can lean on that, right? And and that's where the stability is so important because all right. This is how we do things. This is what our mission is on offense and defense. That is rock solid. Now we're going to plug guys into what we do. And the the roster can be in a little bit of chaos because the foundation is there. Right? Is that the way you see it? Yes, but see, that foundation didn't exist. We're not talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers here or Baltimore Ravens. We're talking about, you know, the tendency is when something doesn't work, uh, fire a bunch of people and blow it up and start all over again. Uh, you know, you look at, as you mentioned, the foundation or whatever, the Steelers are in the playoffs again, 10 and 7. Because of that. Because of because it. of that. That has to be the only reason. Uh, and, and Tomlin, you know, they and they had some rocky times where it looked like there was a lot of finger pointing and things going on there, and they got through it. And where the Browns didn't have the finger pointing, but – you know, early on with the Watson stuff, he's playing, he's not playing, and he was he was okay. But he basically he was either really good, not very good, or bad. There was not a lot of even performances from him. And of course, then you go into DTR land and PJ Walker. Uh, that could have really been well. What do you expect me to do? You did. You traded. Josh Dobbs for a while. Remember, Josh Dobbs was the second coming of um, Bernie Kosar, you know, if you to listen to some of the fans. Of course, like with a lot of backups, the more they played, um, the weaknesses show. And then the, the move for Flacco. But all right, so the front office, they made three major moves for guys that were cast off by other teams. Flacco had nowhere to go. Kareem Hunt. Sat out there, his agent was calling everybody, nowhere to go. They brought him in after Chubb was hurt. And then uh, Dustin Hopkins was on the verge of being cut by the Chargers, uh, although their main concern there was his tendency to get hamstring pulls and leg injuries. And they were going to go with a different kicker. And so they were. He, um, Andrew Berry picked him up for a seventh-round pick. So think about it. Would you trade a seventh-round pick for Dustin Hopkins, Kareem Hunt, and Joe Flacco? That's what they did. Yeah, when you do the math, that's that's pretty much it. So that's what but, they did. And I get what you're saying, Terry. Like the the Steelers and the Ravens have been this for a long time. Yeah. But I, if you're a Browns fan, you've got to be encouraged. Like this could be yes. the first of many years of stability, a system, you know, moving players in and out as needed. But the the what the the identity of the organization is is kind of established. And that you can't say that very often and since the Browns came back in '99. This has to feel good if you're a Browns fan. Because, like, in 2020, they thought they had it with this group. And then 21 came, and then you had um, – uh, what, what happened in 20? Was that – yeah, Baker got hurt. Odell – remember, Odell Beckham's always open. Remember that one. And then in 22, the Watson trade, the suspension, all this stuff. And if you were to look at it on this 
uh, from a, eyes of another team, you say, well, why would you blame the coach or whatever for that? The flip side is, though, this is the, as they say, the Browns. The Browns like to fire people because there are a lot of, and there are a lot of reasons for that to happen. And I really believe, I don't know anything about this. Say Andrew Berry had gone in and, and pushed for a coaching change. It might have happened. But that never was really on his mind or his agenda. It, what, what was on the agenda was these coordinators aren't good enough. And we got to get some people. And remember, Jim Schwartz, he is a Barry guy because not saying uh, Stefanski was against it, but Barry and Schwartz became uh, really tight in 2019 when um, Barry was assistant GM at Philly. And actually, Schwartz, it turned out, was coming near the end of his uh, tenure there because health problems were starting to pop up. He was still the defensive coordinator. All right, Terry. Well, we've kind of looked big picture here. We'll zoom zoom in on the game here a little bit. But I, I do think, like, if you're a Browns fan, win or lose mm-hmm. this weekend, I think the future is a lot brighter. Usually, like you said, guys are getting fired this time of year right after the season ends, new coaches, new GMs. That's not going to happen. And beyond that, the Browns, I mean, Glenn Cook from the Browns front office is interviewing for NFL jobs. Jim Schwartz said last week, I, I'd love to be a head coach again. Like, it, it's a sign of success when other people want your people. Uh, and so that's a pretty different place to be. So, all right, let's get into the game this weekend, Terry. The Browns are playing at Houston on Saturday at 430. It's a rematch of a game on Christmas Eve. And you know how these games go, Terry. There's always some player who kind of pops or breaks out or makes a big difference. I, I wanted to get your thoughts. Do you, is there a player or two for the Browns that you think is going to be a difference maker in this game on Saturday? It's a boring choice. But I think it's Miles. I think Garrett is a chance to, even if he doesn't get a lot of sacks, to get in there and make C.J. Stroud maybe get off of that pure confidence and poise thing a little bit. I think he get a chance to to rattle him. Now, that's because the defensive line, the way it's set up, and all different things that Schwartz does. But I really believe that uh, Miles is primed to have a very big-time game, and that could be a, one that, uh, where they say, you know, Miles wrecks the game, it's possible he would be my guy. Um, because whatever I think Houston does defensively, they're not going to let um, Cooper get 260 yards receiving or whatever it was. I believe that's what it was. You better believe that, yeah. <laughs> they could have 14 guys on him. Uh, so I was trying to think of somebody on offense, but I thought, no, let's go back to – they're going to need to control Stroud, and Miles is a person who can do that. Yeah, I think whoever pressures the quarterback is probably going to win this yeah. game. But my my pick ties into yours, Terry, because I, I think the Texans are not going to let Miles Garrett. You talked about them not letting Amari Cooper yeah. get crazy on offense. I think they're going to be determined to not let Miles Garrett do that. And Laramie Tunsil, their next tackle, is just a he's a top ten guy in the league. Great feet. He he might not, you know, have a draw against Miles Garrett, but he's going to play him tough, and they're going to chip. I I just think Zadarius Smith on the other side is the guy can benefit from them. You know, this is what the Browns envisioned when they brought in Zadarius Smith. Is like when Miles is getting double teamed or whatever, we've got a guy on the other side. I I'm kind of looking at him to maybe maybe be the Brown who's going to make a difference. So how about an offense? Both David? good picks. Um, on offense, I. I <laughs> I keep looking at the Browns receiving core and I'm trying to think like a defensive coordinator, like who scares me. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it's, you, if you take Cooper out of the game by bracketing him with a, with a corner and a safety, it's going to be David Njoku. Like he's got to get over a hundred yards because I got to be honest, when you look at the Browns receivers, who do you trust to get open and catch a ball? I mean, Cedric Tillman got hurt the other day against the Bengals with a concussion. Who knows if he's going to play? David Bell, I think he's having trouble getting separation. Um, you know, a lot, the other guys that have been banged up, like Marquise Goodman, Elijah Moore. Like, I, I don't know what those guys are going to bring. You basically have two dependable guys, and I think they really need David Njoko to get over 100 yards. What do you think and, on offense? And Njoko can do that because uh, it just seems like tight ends are open a lot in the NFL for all their – I don't know the X's and O's well enough, but for all the time these guys spent on preparing defenses and knowing you're going into, whether it's Travis Kelsey, take your pick, your tight end guys, 
they're racking up huge numbers and been doing it for years. And they don't seem to be able to take the tight end out of the game. And so I think that's a really good choice. All right, so we both say Njoku and then uh, Miles for you on defense, and I'll say Zadarius Smith, so we'll see how it goes. So um, anything else on that, Terry? I, was, I wanted to get to the Terry Weekly Kicker update next, but should we do it? Do you think they can <laughs> run the ball? No, I don't. I don't either. Um, I don't know I that didn't. either team's going to be able to run the ball. Yeah. Um, and I think it's going to be a lot of throwing, and it's going to be a long game. Now, there's gonna the, be now the, the counter to that is the – Texans have had tremendous run defense, but the Colts ran all over them. Jonathan Taylor had 180 yards himself, and I believe they had over 200 yards rushing. And it's not like you said, boy, we're just going to let him run the ball because we got to shut down the quarterback. It was Gardner Minshew. And I, I happen to like Minshew I, uh, as, a, as a backup and a fill-in, but you're not sitting there going, you got to shut him down. And they still were able to run for um, 200 yards against the Texans, so maybe, but I just don't have any confidence in the running game at all, and it's not because Kevin is refusing to run. There's nowhere to run most of the time. There's not, but if you compare the two, Terry, the Browns don't have Jonathan Taylor, yeah, and that Colts offensive line is pretty darn good, and I'm not saying the Browns isn't, but the Browns are playing with with their what their fourth and fifth best tackles mm -hmm. with the top three guys out I just think it's a tough thing to do I think the Browns will be happy to, to get what they've been getting lately out of the running game and then just have Flacco take his shots and and it's been working and so Apparently, I think that's what we'll see with the way the line is constructed Bill Callahan has found ways to protect his quarterback he hasn't found way, many ways to break things open uh, on the run game and while Jerome Ford can at times show some speed and burst and maybe we're just spoiled by watching Nick Chubb, but well, you said if you're the opposing defensive coordinator, who scares you? Nobody in the backfield. Nobody. And that's, you know, I we have a lot of respect, I think, all of us Browns fans and those in the media watching. Um, Kareem Hunt, I believe, has nine touchdowns. You can win some uh, money on that. Who leads the Browns in touchdowns is Kareem Hunt in uh, a short yardage situation. But overall, it just were before when Hunt was more in his prime and, and they had Chubb. I mean, you starting at 150 yards rushing for the team each, each week and going up. And boy, if they had Nick Chubb this year, I mean, how many games would they have lost? I mean, I will say they probably would have lost at Baltimore, the, the whole DTR fiasco. They would have lost at the end to um, the Bengals because they didn't care. And maybe one other one. I, you know, they would have beat Pittsburgh, the game where he got hurt. I just, that was, I would love to go into Houston with Flacco and Chubb. Oh, my. Can you imagine with Flacco's ability to play fake and he's faking it to Chubb and not Pierre Strong? <laughs> what, what's going on there? The linebacker and safety's worst nightmare right yeah, there. It's like, you know what? They'll be cut in the middle. They go, yeah, he play flakes really well, but what if they do give it to him? You know, so what do we yeah. do? They probably just stare at it. Oh, well, we'll see if that's 2024's uh, offensive <laughs> modus operandi. So, all right, Terry, the weekly Terry kicker update. I asked you last week how worried you are. We just, before we're taping this on late Tuesday afternoon, we just heard from the Browns today, Kevin Stefanski said that Dustin Hopkins is progressing with his pulled hamstring, but they don't think he'll be ready for this week, and it's unlikely he's going to play. So where's your worry factor on a scale of one being not much worry and 10 being really, really, really worried? You were at a nine last week. Are you I'll go still at seven, a nine? Seven and a half. <laughs> All right, he's how making come? His, he's making his extra points. I mean, when you really look at Riley Patterson's record as a kicker, it's pretty decent. Um, there's a, it's kind of odd. He, he sort of gets cut by Detroit and, and cut by, um, uh, Jacksonville. I, mean, I, I ran his stats, uh, online the other day. I believe, uh, he kicked in two playoff games for Jacksonville and he made three field goals and made all his extra points. Yeah. So, three of three and two of two. You, you, you had yeah, that right. So, so that is, that's, that's encouraging. So it's not like. Because when I started to do that, I thought, well, this guy's never kicked in the playoffs, but it turned out he actually has. Uh, Houston's an easy place to kick, artificial turf, dome, inside, no wind. 
so then it's just a matter of your mental approach. It's not like you have to battle the elements. But still, you know, I'm tough. I'm like, I'm tough on kickers. Either I want the guy that I trust or I don't trust anybody. And so that's <laughs> so like Hopkins within about two or three weeks, I was like, oh, no, I trust this guy. And by trust, I mean, if he misses one, I believe he'll make the next one. I'm not like holding. Remember how it was with Cade York? It's like, oh, no. Uh Oh, he's missed one. He'll make only like one out of the next three. And even if he makes it, you get a feeling that like his stomach was fluttering and uh, and everybody was kind of surprised it went right. And so all I know is Robbie Patterson's track record is pretty good, but I worry about kickers a lot unless it's somebody that I really know and trust and he hasn't reached that level at all. Yeah, I thought you made a good point in your commentary. I think you wrote that the Browns will probably, if it's a normal kick, they're going to take yeah. it and kick it. But if it's something extraordinary that they might have let Hopkins try, maybe they won't let Patterson do it and they'll go for it on fourth down or something. Yeah. I think that, that might, if it's not, unless it's a must make situation at the end of the game. But I think he's I think only he, attempt, I think he might be right on that. I think he's only attempted uh, six field goals from 50 yards or more and made, I believe, three. So now, of course, the yep. odd thing is on. Dustin, he comes in here, and he was something like 18 out of 36 on field goals of 50 yards or more. It was 50%. And he comes here, and he's just banging them all home. 50 yards, no problem. 54, line it up. Here we go, right through the uprights. Um, So that's what happens, though. When a kicker gets hot, suddenly he adds about three to five yards on his ability to kick field goals. It's just – it's probably like how Flacco has been so confident now, you know, He'll throw an extra eight to 10 yards on one in a tight window just because he's feeling it. And if all things else fail and they need a kicker, I don't know if you saw the video, Terry, about David Njoku going around yeah. <laughs> during the Houston game. He was lobbying Stefanski to let him kick. He's like, I can make it. I'm strong. Coach, I'm Kev. Let me kick it. Let me kick it. And Stefanski's like, you're not kicking that. It's too yeah. far. You can't make that. <laughs> and he's probably thinking, too, the way this year has gone, like Bajorka's got – Hurt himself trying to kick off. This is like what will happen to my guy. Um, and I am glad, by the way, because I did get some emails from fans about worried about benching everybody for the Bengals game and will they lose momentum or whatever. No, this is this is not like you sit everybody the whole preseason and then just to get ready for the regular season. These guys have been playing the whole time. They None of those guys that sat needed to play in that mess. And that mess it was. And your thoughts on Jeff Driscoll were? I think he's a nice third string quarterback. I mean, you got to, you know, what can you do out there (laughs) with that? With that, that was a no win situation for him. And I thought he played as well as he could have. That's it. What did you think? I think I could see why he's been with several teams. Yeah. I'd like to see him play with a good offensive line and some good players around him. And that would be an interesting exercise, but it won't matter. And so, uh, all right, Terry, let's move on to our predictions here. I wanted to give all a little right. background. Um, we have a freelance analytics correspondent named Malachi Gardner. And last week he did a post ranking the three teams in order in which Browns fans would want the Browns to play. Like who should the Browns fans want their team to play? And he ranked them Texas as number one as the, the team that the Browns would have a, the best chance again. Really? Then Jaguars and then Colts. And his point really? was – yeah, so this in his in his analysis, this worked out good for the Browns, and the big reason that he cited was that he said the Texans have a very boomer bust passing game, and that Stroud is you know he he's among the league leaders in yards per attempt and explosive plays, but he's one of the worst quarterbacks statistically in terms of accuracy and present preventing disastrous plays for his offense, and a lot of it was he he throws a lot of fifty fifty balls and he waits for Nico Collins or Tank Dell who's actually out. He broke his leg a while back, so he, he's not going to be playing. Um, to, and he's just throwing the ball up and letting those guys go win, and that the Browns will be able to man up on the Texans receivers and really clamp down, and that's why he thought the Texans were the best matchup for the Browns. So going into the game, the Browns are favored by two and a half. Um, are the Browns going to win, Terry? And if so, by how much? What do you, how do you see this thing playing out? Browns win by three because Riley Patterson comes through in the clutch. How's that? because i'm sitting there going i'll eat that one i hope to i find that an odd analysis and here's why it's a it's a very basic number on Stroud: five interceptions for the whole year even if he's throwing the ball up 
it's not getting see to me a disastrous play is an interception it's not really an incomplete pass right and this is this is like real stat head stuff right yes. like, i think maliki mm-hmm. listed stroud had a 71.5 percent on target rate which was 29th in the league um an 18.9 percent very unsuccessful play rate which was 24 so i think he's looking at that stuff interceptions are certainly one metric but um i just thought it was interesting and i, I thought it might be some good background for well, fans it's know, just so. like there was a long thing on 3013 basically saying joe flacco's barely average okay having to do with some of the stats you just cited i'm like the dude's throwing for 300 yards a game he's got he keeps <laughs> getting two to three touchdowns. yeah right you know okay it's kind of the flip side of uh what we mentioned with Stroud. there's more interceptions but you talk about big plays i mean he's he's a little he reminds me like the indians of the middle 90s when they their defense in some areas are was really weak and the Indians never said, oh, we don't care. We get to bat two. So it was kind of like, all right, yeah, I threw an interception like in that, the, against Chicago. Oh, I got a couple picks. We got the fourth quarter. We get the ball, too. And we're going we're gonna to go down there and score. I mean, it's, it's a whole different mindset with, with the Browns right now with Flacco. You know, and that can, by the way, become a disaster in any game along in the playoffs. But Joe Flacco's 5-0 and wild card games. And his poise and his arm are very evident. The confidence the team has in him, you know, the faith multiplier, as Cooper calls him, is very evident. So I'm picking him to win. I haven't really thought about a score, but the Browns by three. All right. Yeah, it's the old uh, analytics versus I know what I'm seeing debate. Yes, so I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I know. So um, I'm going to pick the Browns 27 to 17, Terry. And I think what, it's going to remind a little bit of the Michigan-Washington College National Championship game last night. I think C.J. Stroud is going to have a hard time finding open guys, and he might have to hold the ball. I don't see a lot of threats on this team other than Nico Collins. Um, mm-hmm. and I think the Browns are, are going to lock down, and I, I think they're going to win 27-17 or so. So we'll see. Um, so there I know, we go. I know Saturday. The, the, I'll tell you, the Browns' only fear, and I know this internally, is that Joe just has one of those games where it goes to the other team a lot. They're running it back. But that's it. That's their only fear. Now, that isn't, that's not a total knock on Joe. That's part of the package with Joe. But they also know that even if he's struggling early in the game, going to third or fourth quarter, it's not over with this guy at all. I mean, he has, I believe, his 20 or, I think, let's just say it's at least 20 fourth quarter victories in his career. That is a ton in the NFL. And I've been hearing it all week about 100 times, defense travels, and I think the Browns are going to give them some, the Flacco and the offense some good field position. I think that'll figure in. So, um, Okay, Terry, we're going to take a break, but before we do, I know um, you wanted to mention uh, Jim Donovan. I know you talked to him, and if you want to talk about it real quick, you've got a column coming up on Jim, and it's just it's so awesome that yeah. uh, he's been able to be part of this playoff run, and the fans have been able to enjoy him, and he's been able to enjoy the fans. Uh, do you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, J- Jimmy has just been – overwhelmed with the response of fans from um, coming back because he's still battling leukemia and cancer. Uh, and he's very, I'll just say this, he's pretty upbeat. He's feeling as good as he has in set many months. And, you know, he's excited about the team. And you're going to get a lot of a good insight into what he's gone through and how he's feeling. And then I think I'm going to make it into two parts. He's very interesting talking about the Browns and why he thinks they have been successful this year too. Oh, great stuff. So look for that at cleveland.com slash Pluto the next uh, day or two, right? And Mm -hmm. be great reading heading into the game. So, okay, Terry, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, I want to ask you if you think the Cavs are playing the right way whether they're playing the right kind of basketball i know it's been too many threes not uh, they want to shoot threes what's the pace like so we'll get into that when we come back on terry's talking we're back on terry's talking hey a quick reminder if you want to sign up for terry's newsletter it comes out every monday go to cleveland.com slash newsletters you click on a box you put in your email you are done you get everything terry writes Every week in your inbox, it's a great way to keep up what Terry's got going. So, okay, Terry, let's get into the Cavaliers. Twenty-one and fifteen, as of Tuesday afternoon. Here they are tied for the number seven seed in the East with the Knicks. 
there's kind of been a debate among fans. Are they playing the right way? It's like a never ending thing. We're trying to watch how, what they're doing, what they're shooting. Do you think the Cavs are playing ball the right way these days? What are you seeing? Yes. And I never thought this would work for them, uh, which just shows maybe you could be older like I am and, and kind of stuck in the, on the railroad tracks that only go in one direction. And to see that, they're taking threes, but not stupid threes. That's the big difference. Uh, or the old Charles Barkley line, the league or any fool takes any fool shot at any full time in the game. And, you know, we're not seeing that. I mean, now and then they, they rush three or four a game. But I really look closely at the tape of the San Antonio game, and a couple of things jump out. One is the movement away from the ball. It's real. It's there. So a lot of times you just don't have guys standing in one corner and another corner. It's not just stationary that's saying, we'll just stand here and make catch and shoot threes. No, Struess moves a lot. Sam Merrill is terrific the way he moves without the ball. Uh, you see what I've seen a couple of times while he's not doing it for threes, Coral cutting to the basket. They're making creating situations that put a lot of pressure on the defense. Meanwhile, the middle of the floor is open, the middle of the lane for Jared Allen, who suddenly has figured out, if I play really hard and very aggressive all the time, all this stuff comes my way, whether it's rebounding or, and you see now he's coming out of nowhere on your TV screen to grab a rebound. And then on top of it, of course, he's now when he gets the rebound, even now once a while he still doesn't do it, uh, five feet from the rim, he's going back up with it. But there, it's like he—he he used to just like throw it back out or throw it to the corner. Don't do. You're not Tristan Thompson that you know. If making a layup is a bit of a chore, uh, and I love Tristan because he goes in there, knocks bodies around, gets offensive rebounds and more possessions. No, you can get the ball and put it. In. You shoot 65 percent for your career, and it's like I think it finally. And this is something JB's been pounding away at him, but the the style of moving without the ball is creating room for him to operate it in the middle. Uh, then finally, Donovan Mitchell, uh, we talked about this several weeks ago on the podcast. Uh, I mentioned how when the Bulls and Doug Collins is coaching the Bulls, when the Bulls had many injuries in their backcourt, they put the ball in the hands of Michael Jordan. They put Michael in the, having to bring the ball in the middle of the court. And I remember talking to Doug Collins about that. He said it was because he said, this way, Michael plays the total game. He gets more assists. He's more, more re he's like, he's the engineer and he's not really even thinking about shooting that much. He's watching. And if he sees a shot, he just takes it, but he's looking at his teammates. I see Mitchell doing the same thing and the players are just feeding off of that. You know, Mitchell has a lot of, there's a lot of game in his bag, boy. He's, he's got, he's one of the best I've seen it going to the rim using either hand. He can, it's hard to knock him off the ball, as they say. He's strong. Um, he's not quite as good a three-point shooter as he thinks he is, but he's pretty good. And his mid-range game is terrific. He's got floaters. Um, you know, last year he led the league in getting loose balls and like third and deflections or something like that. And he's doing that this year. So I'm. you could tell I'm excited by what I've seen. That doesn't mean you win a title this way or whatever, but this could have gone like the Browns, could have gone the whole other way. Instead, they are eight and three since those two guys went down. You you know, it could have easily been three and eight if you're just looking at it on paper. Yeah, I had some numbers here, Terry, that I, I was on NBA.com today looking around. Uh, Tristan Thompson has averaged 15 minutes <laughs> or so, and he's played in the 15 games that Mobley's been out. And he's had, in, in that time, he's the Cavs outscored their opponents by 11.3 points per 100 possessions with him on the floor, which is what you were talking about. Yeah. Not just getting a rebound a minute, but just being a plus player in the time yeah. you're on the floor. The Cavs have made the fifth biggest jump in total rebounding percentage during the last 15 games. They are, they rank 11th, and they were 20th in that last season. And then you mentioned Jared Allen, seven straight double-doubles, 21 points, 15.7 rebounds, and five assists over that seven yeah. games. Um and over the month that Mobley has been out, again, I, I got this from NBA.com. I should cite the writer, but I don't have it. Um, he says the Cavs have the league's seventh-ranked bench. They were 26th before that. So this is one of those deals where everybody's kind of getting to do their thing because there's opportunity there. And like you said, Donovan Mitchell's at the center of it. It's It's been an interesting dynamic. 
the rebounding is fascinating, but it also shows one of the old school um, rules that a big part of rebounding is effort. And I really think that the Cavs believe with Evan Movey especially out, and we have Jarrett and a bunch of guys, is team rebounding. Go in there and get the rebound. By the way, the Knicks put a clinic on the Cavs last year with that. Team rebounding all over the place. And get those long rebounds and that. And this group, and it could be, you know, like Struess is a, is a tough nose boy. I like Struess. You know, he gets in there, and, and he's he's a much better overall basketball player than I realized he was. Niang gets in there, shoving guys around. You mentioned Tristan. See, what they did, they, they added just some, some very – uh, gritty veterans to to this group, but you still would think with Evan Mobley and Jarrett, the rebounding would be better, but it isn't. See, this is going to be fascinating when they sit down with their analytics people and we'll talk about what do we do here. I know one thing, this, and this the analytics show that when Donovan Mitchell and Garland are on the floor, they had like the best plus minus of any duo on the Cavs. Hmm. Yet when I watch it, I see stagnation and I see almost like one guard taking one turn, one guard taking another. So I don't know what to make of it. All right, Terry. Well, that brings us to an email we got from a longtime listener, Brian Kirkendall from uh, I think he's from Minneapolis from Minnesota either way, but he says, Hey guys, Brian from Minnie here. JB deserves a ton of credit for how the team has been playing in the past few weeks. This quote from Chris Fedor's article sums it up. We've made some adjustments where we're putting the ball in his hands earlier in the clock. This is what we wanted to do. We've talked about how we could diversify our offense. When you throw the ball to big guys, there's so many things you can do off the ball that create advantages. And So Brian says, the question I have now is how do they sustain this style when everyone is back? This current style and playing 10 guys is sustainable over a longer time period for the Cavs and starts to build an identity. It isn't reliant on two guys playing ISO like almost every team does. It forces the opponent's whole team to play defense. Garland and Mitchell seem to like the two-man ISO because when they are in together, everyone else seems to become secondary. So thanks for that, Brian. So what do, what do you think, Terry? How does this change when the Cavs are healthy and, and have both guards back? I would still keep the ball in Garland in uh, excuse me Mitchell's hands. This is going to be very tough for Garland. Garland does have the ability, if he works at it, to move without the ball and to make shots from the outside and come around on a curl, take a pass, and drive to the basket with his floaters and things. But somebody's going to have to give it up in terms of being the, the dominant guy. Now, Fedor, who I think is one of the best basketball writers in the country, uh, will roll out all the analytics and, and tell you how good they are together. Uh, and there's some numbers that show that. But this group and the way they're playing now uh, is, is if you're a purist, even if they, you think they're shooting a few too many threes, it still is delightful to watch. The big impact will be when, when Evan comes back mobily, what will they do about Jared Allen? Because Mobley doesn't shoot very well from the outside. So if you have Mobley on the floor and say you you float him out to the corner or whatever, his man will say, who cares? I'm watching Allen. Where when you look at the other guys who have been playing, um, you know, Dean Wade has a lot of good plus minus numbers too. I'm, I'm not quite sure why, but he does. Uh, Struess has very good plus minus numbers. But when he's out there with Struess, Niang, some of those other guys, they have to at least pay some attention to him. Uh, I have to admit, I'm confounded. I'm, I'm like, I'm all over the place on this because the old school guy in me doesn't like seeing 43s a game go up. But he loves the ball movement. He loves the player movement. The last stats that I saw, the Cavs are throwing like 25 more passes a game than anybody else in the NBA. It's so just crazy. That's a crazy. huge margin. But yeah. I started counting possessions, four passes, five passes, five passes, four passes, six. I'm like, and, and you know, the old thing, the ball travels faster than when you're dribbled. And so it's, uh, 
it's going to be a challenge for JB, but, you know, sometimes you just figure, you know, this also could be a year when nobody's ever healthy all year anyway. So you, you, it you, might not you, matter. Try to win, <laughs> you try to win how you can. Kind of like how the Browns are with quarterbacks and linemen. And we're always just going to put somebody else in there anyway. Yeah, it's just with only one basketball, Terry, I just finding shots for all these guys. It's just I yeah. wonder if we're going to be able to see this version of Jared Allen because the touches won't be there. It's just maybe if they keep this ball movement going, there will be enough touches for everybody. Maybe this could be one of those things where the injuries were bad, but something good came out of it because they learned how to pace differently with these passes and get more guys touches and get everybody involved. I don't know. That's you're right. That's going to be the biggest challenge for JB the rest of the way. I think the Cavs had some of this, not as three, three point heavy, but movement, and they had it in the year they won 44 games, and they had it with uh, that big front line, Markkinen and Mobley and Allen. Now, Markkinen is a tremendous outside shooter. They could put him out there. And then they had Garland with the ball, and then the shooting guard was, you know, whoever, uh, or Coro, whoever they played. They had not as good a movement as this, but they had far more movement and ball and passing than they did um, with the two all-star guards. So. I'm I'm curious to see it, but I've just enjoyed watching it. What, what did you think of Wemanaba? Uh He's amazing. I mean, for as young as he is, and he he makes plays that. <laughs> so back in the day, Terry, when I first started out as a sports writer, like I played in a quote unquote celebrity basketball game in this little town called Streeter, Illinois, which is where Doug Deacon is from. And they brought in the talk about a thing that would never happen. Now, a bunch of Chicago Bears players took a bus down from Chicago to play against us at the (laughs) local high school. And anyway, long story short, I went in for a layup in this game. I was probably like 22 years old or something. And Ron Morris, this wide receiver from the Bears, it was like a condor had descended over me. (laughs) And I had no idea he was there or that he was even around me. But he just came in and swooped my shot. Into, into the fifth row, and I just started laughing. But that must be what it's like to play against Victor Wembanyama because you, you think you've got a clear path to the rim or, or you're, you have a clear shot, and all of a sudden this condor just comes out of nowhere and just cracks the shot into the third row. And that it's probably like a Ron Morris thing. I don't know. What have you thought of him so far? Defensively, he could be just such a major force, like you said there. And there were several times that um, Okoro – Struz, some others had what I thought were inside shots, but they were afraid of the condor and they dribbled out and they threw it out. Mm. The one just said, I'm going up no matter what. And so he did. Offensively, he reminds me a little bit of Ralph Sampson, where Sampson spent much of his career, his numbers were pretty good, but he could never quite figure out what he was on offense. Uh, he wanted to like dribble through his legs and shoot jumpers, sort of like Wambanaba. He would go in the post, but he was reluctant to do it. Uh, now, Samson, I believe, is in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, we're talking about that. But it, it's a strange size slash lack of weight. Now, we'll see how he is in a couple more years as he fills out. But there should be even there, by the way, the Spurs are a really bad defensive team. Cause I think they're just not, I think they're just letting the kid play and figure it out. But I would, you could scheme up some stuff with him uh, that would just shut the lane down. And that'll be a big part of it. And of course, because this is the modern NBA, we got to make sure while he's getting his three pointers in. <laughs> so he's out there shooting his 27%. And you know, it's like, that doesn't mean never shoot him, but isn't there something in between you could shoot? Yeah, well, there must be something when you know you can shoot over anybody in the league. You probably yeah. feel like you you should shoot over everybody in the league. I don't know. So, um, all right. T- speaking of France, Terry, the Cavs are in Paris as okay. we speak. They're playing a Thursday home game against the Nets in Paris on Thursday. This is part of the NBA's effort to expand the game worldwide, and so the Cavs are going to be playing one game this week. And then it's going to be – I'm really interested to see how this goes, Terry, because the Cavs, um, they're in the midst of playing six teams, six straight games against teams that are, I think, five games under 500. And there's a tougher stretch coming up. After Brooklyn, they've got the Bulls on Sunday. The Bulls are 17 and 21. But then it's Milwaukee next Wednesday, the 17th. And the Bucks, of course, 25 and 12. They're second in the East. Then the Cavs are at Atlanta on Saturday, the 20th. Um, not a, not a great team there, but then they're at Orlando. We saw the Cavs have a tough time in Orlando already this season. Then they have back to backs on the road against the Bucks on the 24th and 26th. And then they're home versus the Clippers who are 23 and 13. That's going to be a tough one too. So 
this form of basketball that they're playing has been working. I want to see how it goes against some of these teams that are more toward the elite level. And it, they, could yeah, be we'll ex- they could be exposed defensively there because um, they do have some weaknesses on defense. Uh, I think, I think if you just keep moving the ball and doing the things you're doing, you're going to create shots. You just you just will. Uh, but defensively, they can be uh, exploited. All right, Terry, I, before we move on from the Cavs, I did want to mention, did you see Imani Bates the other day on Saturday? 38 points mm. for the Cleveland Charge in a 116-104 win over the Santa Cruz Warriors. Not the Santa Cruz, what are they, the Banana Slugs? Is that their name? I don't remember. But anyway, Imani Bates was uh, 13 of 24 from the field, 8 of 15 from three-point land, and just worth noting. So, how many how many free throws did he take? Uh, I didn't pull that. I can look. I don't think it was many. Yeah. But he's he doesn't have the prettiest three-point shot, Terry, but I'll tell you, they sure go in. It seems yeah. like a pretty good clip, so... Um, Something to keep an eye on with Amani Bates. So, and I'm glad they're just letting him play a lot down there. That's what the kid needs to do. Uh, and it's just uh, that could you know pay off big. And you talk about high reward, low risk. That is the classic example of that. And I give Kobe Altman a credit because I just heard a bunch of bad stuff about the kid. Not that he's a bad person off the floor, but just that he was lazy. And that he just took terrible shots, didn't seem to be concerned about coaching. And now shot selection still needs work. But the other stuff, um, he's worked hard. Coaches really like him. Uh, he's not complained about being in the G League. So that's how you develop players. And when you look now, I mean, Struce came out of the G League. And, uh, you know, Porter, Craig Porter's a G League guy. Uh, Sam Merrill's a G League guy. See what has hurt. Amani Bates has been the emergence of Sam Merrill at the edge of 27. Talk about moving without the ball. He's one of the best I've seen of the Cavs of moving without the ball in a long, long time. And he's so tall, and with that quick release, I mean, he comes flying around that pick. You see, early on, when they had him in previous games, David, they just had him standing in the corner, standing off to the side. See, we're what you're seeing now is these guys, when they move and catch and shoot, um, I just think that it, it makes everybody more effective. All right. Well, we're running a little bit short on time here, Terry. I want to get to our two fan letters for this week, and these go back to our 100th episode when you asked fans to write in where they're from, why they're Cleveland sports fans. And if you uh, want to write us with thoughts about the podcast, comments, questions, anything you want, hit us at sports at cleveland.com and just put Terry's talk in in the subject line and we will try and get to it. So, all right, Terry, this first one is from Michael Schrock and Michael writes us to say, Hey guys, I grew up in Smithville in Wayne County and lived my adult life in Columbus, then retired in 2008 to Phoenix. I grew up a Browns tribe and Buckeye fan before I could walk once in your blood forever in your blood. For all these decades, I've read your articles, Terry, whenever I could catch one, you have always continued to provide sound, measured, trustworthy information. When I stumbled on the Terry's Talking Podcast while out here in Phoenix, all I could do is smile. I'll be a regular listener from now on. I'm old enough to recall previous good times for the Browns. My uncle got us a handful of tickets for the Colts game in 1964, but not enough for all of us. My football coach cousin, he was older, Cy, (laughs) their dad, my dad, and another uncle got to go. But the cousin that was my age and I didn't make the cut. And, of course, the game wasn't even on TV. I roll. (laughs) I made up for it being at most every playoff game when I was an adult, but still would have loved to have seen 1964. I own several of your books, and having written this, just pulled out The Curse of Rocky Calavito for another reading. Thanks so much for all your decades of being that rational, sane voice in this crazy time, your opinions, and great insights. Um, travel safe and enjoy Shelby, he says, Terry. I still have several friends there and keep up the great work for many more decades. Again, that's from Michael Schrock. So thanks for that, Michael. Yep, I went to the Shelby Library a while ago and had a great time. And all right, David Campbell, the Smithville High School, their nickname is? They're not the Smithies, are they? Yes, they are. It's not hot. <laughs> that's why it was a layup and you took it. So good for all you. All right. Very good. I love the old high school nicknames. There's some really great ones out there. All right. So then our final letter here is from John Sibison. Sorry, John. John Sibison from Torrance, California. 
And John says, uh, Terry and Dave, I currently live in Torrance, California, but grew up in Cleveland Heights in the 1950s before re relocating to the West Coast. I first be became devoted to the Indians and remember Bobby Avila as mm. being my favorite first athlete. I also remember when Vic Power hit into a double play to end the game and mathematically eliminate the tribe from contention <laughs> in 1959. Oh, the, the memories. very first <laughs> of my many heartbreaks in following Cleveland sports. I had the good fortune of attending opening day in 1975 for Frank Robinson's debut as manager and Dennis Eckersley's no-hitter and, of course, 10-cent beer night. Of course, I attended the Browns' 1964 World Championship game and still have my ticket stub wow. in mint condition. I can also easily rattle off the starting 22 of that Browns championship team that was labeled as Laugh Champs and, mm. according to Sports Illustrated, was going to be destroyed by the mighty Colts. Jim Brown quickly became my all-time sports hero, and I would chart his carries and yards gained. I can pretty much recall from memory his rushing yards gained from each of his glorious nine seasons. Who can say why I have such a fervent passion for Cleveland sports teams and, as Terry inquires, love to suffer? It just happens. I do know that it's unfathomable to me how some people can change their allegiances just because they relocated to a different city. My, loyal, my loyalty has resulted, much to my wife's dismay, into dedicating one large room in my residence to mostly Cleveland sports memorabilia, <laughs> a room affectionately known as the Shrine Room. Oh, and I have boy. some very cool items. Remember, this is a 74-year-old little boy talking. I have a ticket stub to the first regular season NFL game played by the Browns against the NFL champion Philadelphia Eagles in 1950, a poster to Jim Brown Farewell Day. Hmm. signed by number 32 multiple pennants including the 1948 indians and 1964 browns in mint condition framed mint time magazines from 1937 and 65 featuring bob feller and jim brown on the covers tribe pocket schedules for every year between huh. 1950 and 1990 and framed newspaper front pages celebrating the cleveland championship teams of 48 64 and even 1920 among many other items and he says, keep up the great work, guys. Again, that's from John Sibison in Torrance. Wow, that's some collection that John's got. There was <laughs> it's a, like a, a museum. There's a talk show host named Jeff Sindelar for years in town, many sure. a moon ago. And Jeff would say, those are good items, partner. <laughs> neighbor, those are real. Yeah, not partner, neighbor. <laughs> neighbor, those are really good items. Because half his show degenerate into, you know, I've got a 1967 baseball card of Jack Cray. Like, what do you think it's worth? Not the paper <laughs> it's written on is what it's worth. <laughs> so were those, and then there were the good items. Huh? It was not a good item, partner. <laughs> classic, classic. All right, Terry, I think we're good here. Anything else you yes. want to get into or mention? No, that'll do it. Don't forget uh, about Terry's new book, The Guy with the Sign. You can catch that at terrypluto.com, where all of his books are found. It's a pretty impressive list you got of books, Terry. I was just looking at it the other day. It's uh, a lot of different topics and, and some great stuff in there. So, it's because I'm um, old. <laughs> all right. We will be back next week, everybody, to talk some Browns playoffs. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the game. And we will catch you next week on Terry's Talking.